We'd like to give a warm welcome to him as he comes up to bless you guys. It's great to be here this morning. I want to talk about the point man of all point men, the man Christ Jesus. So if we'll turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's great to be with you. I've already experienced lots of New Mexico hospitality, which I greatly appreciate. Wonderful to be part of this conference and to be part of you guys. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me pray before we begin. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity we have, Lord, to uh, sharpen our faith, to uh, Lord, to get back to the cutting edge. Lord, we want our lives to count. We want to make a difference. And we thank you for the work that you've had in our lives, the difference Jesus has made in us. And so now, Lord, we want to be like you. We want to follow you. Lord, we want to be to our world what you've been to us. Lord, thank you for your saving work. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you want us to be the same kind of servant leader that you have been. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd teach us this morning, Lord. Teach us to how, how to be a man like Christ Jesus. We pray it in your name, Lord. Amen. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, we read, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. I want to start by describing a scene from one of my favorite movies. It's called The Man from Snowy River. Maybe you've seen it. Well, in the movie, the main character, a mountain-bred horseman named Jim Craig, is confronted by his fellow mountain men. Even though his father has died, he can't take over the family's ranch until he's earned the right. And so young Jim leaves the mountain country for the low country to prove his manhood. After signing on to work at a prosperous cattle ranch, a jealous ranch hand frames Jim. He chases off the prize stallion, and he blames the betrayal on Jim. Well, that night, Jim is sitting around a campfire. Two friends tell him that he's been falsely accused. They suggest that he ride with the rescue party the next day, to retrieve the stallion, and in doing so, restore his reputation. Well, Jim remarks, he says, that's asking too much of a man. His old buddy Spur replies, a man, did you say? Spur insinuates that the verdict is still out, that there's more for Jim to prove to be considered a real man. Well, the next day, Jim acts like a man. Rather than complain about the injustice done to him or cast blame on his circumstances, he takes responsibility for what's not his fault. He rides to retrieve the stallion. Jim's bravery, his daring, sets him apart from the other horsemen. He corrals the stallion all by himself and in doing so wins back his good name. In the final scene, his former boss shouts at him, You've got a long way to go yet, lad. And that's when Spur jumps in. He's not a lad. He's a man. 
And then he shouts it again, this time louder for emphasis. He's a man. Now let me put a different spin on the text that we just read. For here's how I hear Paul's words. Jesus isn't just male. His manhood is more than a body with masculine features. Jesus is not just a human with a Y chromosome. He's a man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. For Jesus, too, came from the mountain to the low country to prove himself. He took responsibility for what was not his fault, and he gave his life a ransom for you and me. Pilate saw Jesus, and he said to the crowd, Behold the man. The Roman centurion who knew men, he saw Jesus and he said to himself, this was a righteous man. Now Paul sees Jesus in heaven. He has ascended back from where he came. And it is quite stunning. Today, a man sits on the throne in heaven. Jesus is still a man. The Son of God is the man, Christ Jesus. And Paul's emphasis to a young Timothy is now you also be a man. As he said to the Corinthians, be on the alert, be firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And what better way for any of us to act like a man than to model the man Christ Jesus. This morning, I want us to examine the masculinity of our Lord Jesus. And here's why. The number one social problem facing Western civilization today is that men have forgotten how to be men. And because of either their absence or their ignorance or their selfishness, they are not teaching true masculinity to their sons. Males have vacated their God-given role as protector and servant and loving leader. You know, when a boat overturns and folks are drowning in the surf, someone always shouts out, man overboard. And that's what's happened in America. Manliness has capsized. And the cause of the problem is a complicated one. On the one hand, feminism has gelded American men of their masculinity. It stripped men of male honor and assertiveness and responsibility. To elevate the status of women today, men are regularly put down and degraded. The differences between men and women are downplayed, if not outright denied. Women are trained and coached to be more masculine, men more feminine. The goal of feminism is a sexless, genderless society. Recent studies have provided overwhelming evidence that the greatest determining factor toward a child's delinquency is the absence of a father. Yet feminism today continues to diminish the importance of husbands and fathers. Divorce has become easier. Unwed motherhood has been destigmatized. Today, a Hollywood starlet picks a stud from her boy barn to sire her offspring. And society applauds. 
the public and the paparazzi go gaga over the baby, never caring about what the child is going to miss without a dad in his or her life. In today's androgynous world, manliness and maleness and the leftovers of masculinity are viewed as dysfunctions by some. Popular media rarely depicts men, especially husbands and dads, as loving and smart and strong and noble. Today, TV fathers like Andy Griffith and Michael Landon, fathers who knew best, have been replaced with bumbling idiot slobs like Homer Simpson. Men today don't have a lot of choices for role models. And as a result, I'm afraid that many men have lost their way. They've taken their cues from the culture rather than the scripture. They've grown unsure of themselves. Some men have responded to society's gender confusion by going along with expectations. Oh, they've become soft and compliant. They've grown subservient and have capitulated their leadership. They take no initiative or responsibility. They seek the path of least resistance. Other men have gone to the opposite extreme. They recoil at culture's attempts to feminize them, and I don't blame them. But to prove their masculinity, they release their aggression in negative ways. They become violent toward society and toward women. Neither is true masculinity. In today's society, masculinity is either a soft, effeminate, girl pants wearing, freshly pedicured metrosexual, or it's a violent, sex-obsessed, woman-exploiting thug. We have lost sight of biblical manhood. Hey, we need Jesus for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is to figure out how to be a real man. For Jesus is the man that all men were meant to be. Once there were two pastors, they, they lived next door to each other. One of the men led the local Methodist church, the other pastored the local Baptist church. Well, these two families, they each had five-year-old children. These two kids were best of friends. One of the children was a little boy, and the other was a little girl. Well, every Sunday morning, the two kids would wave to each other as they drove off to their respective churches, but in the afternoon, they would come back home, and they would play together in the yard. One blistering hot August afternoon, the kids were playing out in the sprinkler. Their clothes had become soaked with water. So they decided to take off their clothes and lay them out on the hood of the car so they could dry. Of course, the two kids, they were just five years old. They were both just innocent of what they were doing. But when that little boy saw that little girl without her clothes on, he started scratching his head. Later, he told his dad, Wow, Dad, I didn't know there was so much difference between Baptists and Methodists. <laughs> of course, Baptists and Methodists are alike in a major way. They're both Christians. Nevertheless, they have their subtle differences. And the same is true with males and females. We're alike because we are both human beings and made in God's image. But God would never want us to overlook our distinctiveness. When God created us, 
He did so male and female. He designed men to be men, to look and act and talk like men. And he desired women to be women, to look and act and talk like women. Men and women are equal in terms of status and favor. Both reflect God's image and glory. But listen, equal does not mean same. God made mankind with distinction. Here's my point. Gender matters to God. Not only do the biblical roles for male and female nurture and order our society, they also speak to us vital truths about God's very nature. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit. God doesn't have male parts and male chromosomes because he has no parts and no chromosomes. God is spirit. He has no physical body. Biologically, God is asexual. But relationally, God is very, very masculine in terms of character and role and nature. God is decidedly male. From the first page of your Bible to the last, God reveals himself in the masculine gender. He has never once called God the mother or God the daughter. He is always God the father and God the son. Certainly God's people, either Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church, are usually spoken of as feminine. But the Godhead is invariably portrayed as masculine. There is a danger today threatening Christianity. Several of the newer Bible translations have advertised themselves as, quote, gender sensitive, where the translators can swap a gender-specific word for a broader term they do. Rather than man, they'll use a more generic word like humanity or humans. And at times, this is harmless. But where will it stop? I mean, will we replace son of man with offspring of human? Listen to a few translations of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Today's New International Version reads, For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human. The New Century Version puts it this way, There is one God and one mediator so that human beings can reach God. That way is through Christ Jesus, who is himself human. Are the translators afraid of the M word? Man? I mean, the problem to me is obvious. Jesus wasn't just human. He was born male. He was a man. It was God's design for Jesus to have hairy legs and stubble on his face and a husky voice and an 11th toe. I mean, Jesus was a man. Hey, if Christians aren't careful, political correctness is going to rob us of our theological accuracy. In the Bible, God reveals himself with the masculine pronoun, he. Genesis 1 verse 5 reads, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. 
In Genesis 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Now, there are verses which speak of God's concern and compares it to the to, uh, ver- uh, characteristics of a woman. For example, he talks about God's passion and compares it to a nursing mother's love for her child. Often his passion is described as labor pains. Jesus, remember, wanted to gather Israel under his wings as a mother hen gathers the chicks under her wings. Female traits can also reflect God's image, but throughout the Bible, without exception, God always refers to himself as he and never as she. After God created Adam and Eve, he put the man in in charge of the creation, even over his wife. Adam was responsible for his family. God established male headship as the pattern in the home and in the church. Genesis 5 lists Adam's family tree, and the branches are all filled with men. The same occurs in Genesis 10, when God lists the descendants of the sons of Noah. From creation, God established patriarchal societies. He made men to be the head of their families. Later, when God speaks to Moses in Exodus 3, he identifies himself as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he says this name is a memorial to all generations. Obviously, God is over women and men, but he observes a chain of command. God is over the husband, then the husband is over his wife. Thus, God is the God of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Men play crucial roles in the Bible. Men go to war. Men serve as priests and offer sacrifices. The men are chosen as kings and prophets. God also uses the women in meaningful ways. But over and over throughout the scriptures, God always sends the men to the head of the pack to lead his community. Galatians 4 verse 4 tells us, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Realize God's plan for the ages reached a crescendo with the birth of a boy. Jesus was not God's daughter, but God's son. Make no mistake about it, when God became a human, he took a Y chromosome. He came in the male gender. Later, when Jesus established his ministry, he also followed this same pattern of creation. Our Lord chose 12 disciples. And guess what? They were all men. Now, there were women who followed Jesus, but he didn't choose the women to lead. Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany may have had a stronger faith than either Peter or John. But Jesus chose the men for headship. In Acts chapter 2, there were women in the upper room filled with the Holy Spirit. But God used Peter, a man, to preach. An emphasis on masculine leadership persists throughout Acts and the growth of the early church. In fact, you can fast forward to the end of the age when Jesus returns to earth a second time. And you will find that he comes as a mighty, manly man. 
In Revelation 19, verse 11, heaven opens, and you see Jesus on a white horse. It's a war horse, friends. He isn't floating down on fluffy, puffy, cumulus clouds. Jesus is on a stallion. He's on a war horse. It's stomping its hooves. Hot breath billows out of its nostrils. Jesus is called faithful and true. His eyes are wild with passion. His head holds many crowns. His robe is splashed with the blood of the men that he has slayed in battle. Jesus swings a sharp sword to strike the nations. Pardon the lingo, but Jesus busts chops, takes names, and starts breaking kneecaps. He fights for what's right. He judges and wars against sinners. Jesus is a pacifist, all right, but only after he kills off all his enemies. Like an ancient warrior decorated for battle, he even has a name tatted down his thigh. It reads, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You won't find a stronger dose of testosterone than Revelation chapter 19. Yet here's where we need to sort of slow it down and think it through. How do we reconcile this vision of Jesus' second coming? Jesus on the warpath with the humility that Jesus modeled at his first coming. I guess you could say, what does it mean to be a man like Jesus? In Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, Paul tells us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude be in you. And then he goes on to describe the humility of Jesus that we should be modeling that we should empty ourselves, we should deny our pride, we should shun the trappings of power and maintain a servant's heart. Certainly, I need to exemplify the selfless attitude that Jesus taught and displayed at his first coming. But think it over. How can I do that in earnest without first recalling the glory that Jesus had before he came and the glory he'll possess when he comes again? Philippians 2 speaks of Jesus' humility. He was obedient to God, even to the point of death. But then Paul immediately adds to his resume these words. God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. See, implied is that we can't really appreciate Jesus' humility without also considering his glory. So you might gloss over the significance of Jesus washing his disciples' feet unless you knew that glorious angels had bowed and worshiped at his feet. Jesus is the Lord of light. Thus, what manner of love did it take for him to step out into our darkness? Jesus dwells in unapproachable holiness. How could he descend into our cesspool? It also must have taken amazing strength and resolve for Jesus to humble himself. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns to earth to condemn this wicked world, knowing that. How meaningful was it for Jesus to say to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In Revelation, Jesus pulls a sword to slice and dice his enemies, 
On the cross, a soldier pokes a spear through Jesus' rib cage. He could have fought back. He told Peter earlier that he had angels under his charge. Imagine Jesus lugging a cross as ten of thousands of battle-hardened, combat-ready, special-op angels, fiercely loyal to their king, are ordered to stand down. See, we're so accustomed to seeing Jesus as the lamb, as the sacrifice. When we read Revelation and see him as a lion, we're surprised. But heaven was so accustomed to the lion, it was shocked to see Jesus as the lamb. Here's the big thought in my message this morning. True masculinity is an attitude that combines both Jesus' first and second comings. It's not just being a servant, but a servant who takes charge and acts. It's not just showing humility, but humility with the backbone to defend others. It's not just identifying with the lowly, but it's taking action to lift them up. It's not just weakness. I embrace my weakness to know his strength. And it's not just being a sacrifice, but it's being a living sacrifice that rises up from the altar in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a robust life, to count for all eternity. True masculinity combines a lion's willingness to rule and be strong and a lamb's willingness to be humble and live sacrificially. And Jesus of Nazareth was this sort of man, a blend of both strength and sacrifice. Yet I find very few people today, even Christians, with this sort of picture in their minds when they think of Jesus. The church has developed some very confused and warped impressions of Jesus. And I believe some of these pictures have robbed men of their masculine spirit. I brought with me a few of the crazy caricatures people today have of Jesus. I think James is going to throw some pictures up on the screen. Here's the first one. There's the hippie Jesus. Peace and love, peace and love. Sounds like Ringo Starr, doesn't it? Make love, not war. This is Jesus on the mountaintop somewhere staring at his navel. Then there's the Dr. Spock Jesus. He's the Vulcan with no emotion. This is robo-Jesus. He acts like he's on Ritalin. He's sedated. He's not a real person. Then there's the milk toast Jesus. Never a harsh word. Always polite. Weak as water. Here's the 98-pound weakling. You kick sand in his face and he'd run from you. This is the teacher's pet. Then there's the incandescent Jesus. He comes complete with an effervescent halo. He looks like he's electric. At night, you can always see him because he glows in the dark. And of course, the stain-free Jesus. He never gets dirty. He never sweats. He walks on water. He avoids getting wet. He's aloof and off limits. Nothing touches him. And then finally, of course, there is the Mr. Rogers Jesus. Oh, it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. Just be a good neighbor and you'll go to heaven. Listen, 
None of these caricatures even remotely resembles the real Jesus. The Jesus of history spent 30 plus years working a blue collar job. He was a construction worker. He was a carpenter before the age of power tools. Jesus swung a hammer for a living. You could see calluses on his hands and muscles on his frame. He was strong and tanned. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus was a he-man with bulging biceps or even some strikingly handsome person. Isaiah 53 says that there would be nothing about his appearance that would attract us or impress us. Jesus was just an ordinary guy. He was a Joe the plumber type of guy. An ordinary looking guy, I should say. Author Rick Bunshu recalls a painting from his childhood that depicted Jesus as pale and frail. He writes of it. He says, Jesus was a gaunt, pasty white creature hidden under mounds of flowing robes. His hair was long, thin, and stringy. He was painted to look strained, tired, and supplicant. This was gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He was soft and suspiciously effeminate. I've seen some of those same distorted portraits. I'm not sure where the artist got off envisioning Jesus in that light. But I know what they need to do. They need to repent and repaint. Jesus might not have been ripped, but trust me, he was no wimp. I am convinced that the Jesus of the Bible is a Jesus that most people, even some church folk, have never met. Jesus was humble and loving and kind, certainly. But he was also untamed and unpredictable, passionate and radical. Jesus was a manly man who grabbed life by the throat. He took charge of every situation he was in. Jesus lived boldly and bravely, fully and freely. He was a servant, but he was a servant on a mighty mission. When you think of Jesus, recall Paul's words to Timothy. God did not give us the spirit of timidity. There was nothing shy or timid about our Lord Jesus. You know, whenever we think of Jesus' masculinity, we usually recall the time where he bounced the crooked priest out of the temple with his bare knuckles. But there was an earlier occasion when Jesus went temple brawling with a whip. And not just a whip that he picked up from a bystander or found laying against the wall. You know, I used to think that Jesus just kind of got caught up in the moment. And he reached for whatever happened to be available. It could have been a broom or maybe a stick. just happened to be a whip. But that's not how it happened. Read John chapter 2 very carefully. The Bible tells us that Jesus made a whip of cords. Get the picture. Jesus is sitting over in the corner of the temple, weaving a whip as he's eyeballing these crooks, <laughs> these priests. His blood is boiling. His hands are clenching. Hot molten rage is bubbling up within him. Jesus is angry. He knows it's about to go ballistic, that this is going to get ugly. 
Hey, you need to know, Jesus of Nazareth cleansed the Jewish temple in a premeditated act of aggression. And this wasn't the last time he overturned tables. Quite frankly, it became his habit. Jesus was always turning over tables, upsetting the apple cart, shaking up the status quo. Jesus was the ultimate boat rocker. You remember, Jesus always made a point of healing folks on the Sabbath day. Have you ever wondered why? He could have cured them on Friday or on Sunday and avoided all kinds of conflict and controversy. I mean, God is open 24-7, 365 days a year. I mean, there's six other days of the week for Jesus to have worked miracles. But why was it he always waited for Saturday? I'll tell you why it was. He wanted to infuriate the little people. He wanted to agitate the narrow and the legalistic people. Jesus ran roughshod over their rules and their traditions. He showed them how silly they were, how hypocritical they were. They put law above love. They put ritual above people. Jesus wanted to expose their silliness. But Jesus also made life uncomfortable for his own disciples. He frustrated them with hard sayings. He sent them out once with no pay and with scant provisions. On one occasion, Jesus called his right-hand man, Peter, the devil. How encouraging was that? Once Jesus stood up his own family when all they wanted to do was sit down with him and talk to their brother. You remember Jesus' only foray into politics. Talk about uncomfortable. Imagine the press conference when Jesus took the mic and called King Herod a fox. Gentle Jesus once threatened to hang a millstone around a person's neck and throw him in the deep end. That sounds more like the Jewish mafioso, mafioso to me. One day, a rich man comes to follow Jesus. I'll bet the disciples were glad. Boy, could they use an infusion of cash into the treasury. Yet Jesus makes it hard on him, tells him he can't follow until he sells all his stuff. We're told that the rich man went away sad. I'll bet the disciples ended up mad. Speaking of mad, what about the environmentalists? When Jesus cursed the Jerusalem fig tree, I'll bet tree huggers all over Israel were up in arms. Some folks accused Jesus of drinking too much. Other people said he ate groceries like a glutton. Jesus didn't care what people thought. If you've ever been inclined to call Jesus a nice, well-mannered guy, I hope you don't read Matthew chapter 23. For there Jesus goes off on the religious leaders. He calls them blind guides. You fools. You hypocrites. You sons of hell. You whitewashed tombs. You serpents. You brood of vipers. It's hard to call somebody a brood of vipers in a nice way. He hurls every name in the book at these people. You know, when you read that chapter, you're tempted to want to sort of pull Jesus off to the side and calm him down, you know. Hold on now, Lord. I know you don't like these guys, but at least respect the uniform. I mean, they're, they're still God's priests. They're men of the cloth. 
Hey, say what you want about Jesus, but he was a ball of fire, friends. He dug deep and he lived large. He was always in the moment. Jesus cared about God and he cared about people and he cared about truth and he cared about what was right. And I got to ask you, what is it that you care about? Everywhere that Jesus went, he shook things up. He was determined to leave behind a big footprint. And realize people who shake up the status quo aren't usually called nice. There are other terms like bother and pest and meddler. Not nice guy. Jesus was labeled a troublemaker. And in one sense, that's what got him killed. And why is it, why is it, 2,000 years later, we still want Jesus to be a nice, easygoing, low-maintenance, undemanding Savior? People today treat Jesus like a pet. Oh, that a boy, Jesus. Nice Jesus. Sit Jesus. Roll over Jesus. As if we can order him around. One author writes, we want to just my size, God. Approachable and fluffy without all those picky commandments. But once we get him down to teddy bear size, we find that he's powerless. He's unable to ease our suffering or comprehend our dark confusions. His strength isn't equal to our grief. We find that a reduced God is no God at all. Well, please meet my God. He is a man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is no reduced God. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And he wants those who follow him, who have been born of his spirit, to be fully alive with all his passion and daring coursing through them. In the mold of Jesus, real men, manly men, are not exactly nice guys. Friends, you can be nice. You can avoid trouble and mind your manners and make your mom and dad proud and even win the admiration of your friends at church and do nothing of lasting value. You haven't built anything. You haven't fought for anything. You haven't achieved anything. Where's the blood, man? Where's the sweat and tears? All you've done is be nice. You can be nice and still go straight to hell. Here's a funny quote and a sad truth. It's been said, Christian men are often the bland leading the bland. Realize, Jesus doesn't want a group of nice guys. He wants men. He wants a church full of Christ-like manly men. I have a friend of mine who told me for years, he assumed that just because he was a nice guy, he didn't smoke, drink, chew, or run with women who do. <laughs> that just because he was a nice guy, he thought he was pleasing to God. Now he knows there's more to it. Some so-called so, so men I know just take up space. They're, they're like the unused shovel hanging in your garage. Oh, it's clean. It's polished. It still has a label on it. It's not dented or dirty. It looks good, but it's not doing any good. It definitely isn't the fulfilling the purpose for which that shovel was created. 
It needs to dig a hole or mix some cement or plant something that's going to grow. George Orwell once said, the ordinary man is passive. So far from endeavoring to influence the future, he simply lies down and lets things happen to him. And the church can be a haven for this type of guy. We mind our spiritual manners. We wipe our theological noses while our wives go unnurtured and our kids go unprotected and the people around us go to hell in a handbasket. But we're... Jesus wasn't a nice guy. He had nerve and focus and determination. He, Jesus never held a gun, but he could sure pull the trigger. He wasn't afraid to speak up and act out for the good of others. He used his masculinity to glorify God and to serve folks who otherwise would have never gotten a break. Paul Coughlin writes disparagingly of our churches today. He says, numbing niceness still pumps like ether through sanctuary air ducts on any given Sunday morning. Numbing niceness. Now hear this. Jesus came to take away my sins, not my backbone. Christian men are not invertebrates. Christ-like does not mean spineless. A book I read to prepare for this study had a chapter in it entitled Childhood, Where We Learned to Live Small. The author talks about the abuse and put-downs and fears that he suffered as a little boy. And he learned, if I live small, my troubles will be few. And so he opted for a life of avoidance. He became a non-confrontational person. Rather than attack life, he adopted a passive approach. He took life as it came, dodging difficulties and searching out the path of least resistance. This is what happens when the masculine spirit of a boy gets damaged in childhood. He shrinks back rather than grows up. Perhaps this has happened to you. Realize a real man lives the opposite kind of life. He lives large. Like Jesus, a true man grabs the bull by the horns. He takes life by the throat. A man isn't content with the status quo. He's all about making a difference in his world. A Christian man is not afraid to follow Jesus into the fight. He's strong enough to battle and he's strong enough to stand down when the captain orders. He'll lay down his rights for others and he'll stand up for what is right. Again, Rick Bunshew writes of Christian men, an energy that breaks the status quo should be expected when the spirit of the one who overturns tables pulses through the veins of men who serve him. It grieves me, but many churches today, even Bible-believing churches, misunderstand Christianity and the cross, especially what it means for men to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Ironically, Christians once found motivation to go to war under the sign of the cross. Somehow today, we've turned the cross into a symbol of passivism and capitulation. Yes, the cross speaks to us of surrender and weakness and sacrifice, but these aren't virtues in and of themselves. 
Surrender to evil is an act of cowardice. Being weak isn't necessarily godly. And you can sacrifice to the wrong God. This is why some young black men today are abandoning Christianity for Islam. They hear words like surrender and weakness and sacrifice, and they wonder why. What's the point of that? To them, it sounds like a justification for more oppression and slavery. They'd rather fight. They have rejected the sissified Jesus for jihad. It's sad, but these men don't understand the powerful paradox of the cross. They've misread God's intentions. Jesus did surrender, but not to Roman soldiers and to their whips. He surrendered to the will of God. And through his surrender, he has overcome sin and rebellion in our lives. Jesus did become weak, but not because he liked getting beat up. By the way, the cross is the only beating Jesus will ever take. Jesus died on the cross to show us how we can tap into real life and into spiritual power. And Jesus sacrificed his rights, but not because he was afraid to fight. He did fight. And he won more than a fisticuffs with the Romans. He won for us a right standing with God and the potential for a better world. As a servant of Jesus, let us follow his example. Yes, surrender. But not because you're afraid of a conflict. Surrender to the will of God. Not the demands and intimidation and manipulations of this wicked world. Yes, embrace your weakness. But not because it's easier just to lie down and give up and roll over. No, embrace your weakness knowing that it's the pathway to God's power. And yes, sacrifice your rights. But not because you're afraid to take a stand. Sacrifice your rights so that you can protect and advance the rights of others. See, the cross is a paradox. An instrument of death is God's way to new life. And the same paradox takes what would be dead-end objectives like surrender and weakness and sacrifice and turns them into power plugs. Real victory is unleashed through the cross. Christians surrender to win. We become weak so that we can grow strong. We sacrifice to serve others. This is true cross training. Learning to live like Jesus. True Christianity is a manly religion. Jesus died as a lamb, but he has and will always be lion-hearted. One day a little boy, he answered the telephone. The man on the other end asked, he said, can I speak to your dad? The little guy whispered, no, sir, he's busy. Well, can I speak to your mom? Little boy whispered, no, she's busy. Well, is there anyone else around? Little boy whispered, the policeman. Well, can I speak to him? Little boy whispered again, no, sir, he's busy. Well, the call caller asked, he said, what is the police officer doing? The boy whispered, he's with the fireman. Well, let me speak to the fireman, he whispered. He's busy too. 
Finally, the exasperated caller, he asked the boy, he said, what in the world is everybody over at that house doing? Little guy whispered, they're all looking for me. Well, this morning, God is looking. But God isn't looking for little boys. No, no, no. God is on the lookout for men. This morning, God is here recruiting real, masculine, manly men who will surrender their rights and become weak so Jesus can make them strong and sacrifice for other people and be the kind of man that Jesus was and is. If you want an example of true masculinity, there is no clearer, sharper picture than the man, Christ Jesus. I hope you'll follow him. I hope you'll be like him. Here's a man we can follow into battle. Here's a man you can rush up a mountain behind. And I hope that you'll introduce this man to everybody you know. For there is one certainty. He is a man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. And Lord, we want to serve you. We want to follow you. Lord, we want to love you with all our hearts. And we want to be men in the same spirit and in the same vein as our Lord Jesus. Please fill us with your power. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Give us a vision for what our lives can be. Help us not be content to just roll over and accept things. But help us, Lord, to make our world a better place and help us to start today. Father, work in our hearts and in our lives. We pray it and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.